Hello there, this is Mark Bauerlein with another conversation. Before we get to it, a word about one of our sponsors. Located in the foothills of Wyoming's spectacular Wind River Range, Wyoming Catholic College, an accredited four-year Great Books Institution, is built on the ancient Western tradition of the liberal arts and the freedom of the American West. The college offers its students an immersion in the primary sources of the classical tradition, the grandeur of the mountain wilderness, and the spiritual heritage of the Catholic Church. Students experience the illumination of imagination and intellect through the great books and traditional disciplines, literature and philosophy, mathematics and theology, science and Latin, and an outdoor program second to none. The college celebrated an in-person graduation with its seniors last year and welcomed its largest freshman class ever this year. Learn more about the college's unique space in the world of American higher education at wyomingcatholic.edu. We have with us today Kenny Shu. He is president of Color Us United, and his new book is An Inconvenient Minority, The Attack on Asian American Excellence and the Fight for Meritocracy, our topic today. Uh, welcome, Mr. Shu. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, first, tell us uh, exactly what Color Us United is and does. We advocate for a race-blind America, um, and of course, it's this is a culture that is quickly turning in the other direction. We are, we are careening, unfortunately, towards a racist future uh, by way of the, these woke and CRT initiatives in schools, in our education system, and now even in our corporations and public life. Um, and it used to be that we should strive to treat each other just as colorblind as possible, not really care about the race that you look like. Now they're saying, no, you have to care about somebody's race. You have to see someone through the lens of their racial experience, whatever that means. Um, and so we fight against that principle. We fight for the principle of colorblindness. We take on woke corporations uh, who try to force their employees to believe these things with diversity trainings and racial quotas. Our current big project is against American Express, uh, which is dividing people on the basis of race and, uh, of course, promoting certain races above others. We have the evidence to show that. That's unamericanexpress.com. Um, so that's what we do. And this, of course, goes along with some of the prominent themes in the book uh, about the way, the way an open society, a pluralistic democracy, a, a place of equality has, has to operate. You, you can't look at people in these hard group identity terms. What what happens to a society when we do start, you know, looking this group, that group, that group? What happens? Well, in my book, An Inconvenient Minority, uh, I describe it. And it's really, you know, in, in the first chapter, I talk about the Chinese Cultural Revolution. Um, and this is a lesson that people, that Chinese people learned the hard way. And by hard, the hard way, I mean the really hard way. He had a dictator, Mao Zedong, um, who became a friend of a lot of Chinese peasants and people um, and claimed to be their, their best pal. Um, and in fact, when he first came to power in the Communist Party, he pledged to do things in a socialist way so that um, the peasant would get... Um, the peasant would become the powerful. He called it the dictatorship of the proletariat. And his whole idea was the division of people into classes, except it wasn't just 
class um, by by wealth. It was Mao and people who loved Mao and worshipped Mao versus those were the red classes versus people who were the what he called rightists, nationalists, capitalists, landowners, anybody intellectuals, anybody that he didn't like, called the black classes, and. That was the society that engendered the Cultural Revolution in China, which later killed um, nearly 50 million Chinese people um, because of the relentless division and hatred. He stirred up children against parents. Uh, so I see where this is going. You know, I've seen where this has been going for a long time. Um, and even what we call, consider mild division today uh, has has the tendency to veneer into um, the worst case scenario if we don't put a stop to it. Okay. To uh, uh, to I, actually quickly, uh, do you want to give the website address for Colorus United for those listeners who would like to look you up? Absolutely. You can look me up, and uh, you can look up Colorus United's work at colorusunited.org. Okay. Simple enough. To the book, what makes Asian Americans? Inconvenient, as your title puts it. <laughs> They're inconvenient to the narrative that the U.S. is a systemically racist country. Um, why would the why would a racist country allow? Actually, let me start over. Um, Asian Americans are a minority, right? We're people of color. Um, a lot of us did not come here with any wealth. Um, the ones that you, the, the whole stereotype that Asians are crazy rich, it's more of a new thing that the new Chinese people who've come from, you know, new wealth have come in. Yes, that's true. But definitely the people who came, the Chinese people, the Vietnamese people, the Koreans, Japanese who came uh, in the 70s, 80s, and 90s did not come from any wealth. Um, they're at the average income of the average wealth of those people was zero dollars and zero cents probably less than that because they had to take out debt to come here. Um, yet in one generation, those same people, minorities, no social connections, no generational wealth, were able to transform their family circumstances in America to become the highest earning uh, group, racial group in the United States. Um, Vietnamese Americans, 80% of them came to the United States they didn't even know English. And now their children graduate from college at a higher rate than whites. This is a remarkable success story. And it's not possible in a racist country. Because why would, why would a country that's, that, that is um, sojourned towards white supremacy allow a group of minorities, Asian Americans, to overtake them in household income and wealth and education? And yet they do. Because the reality is this is not a racist country. This is a country where meritocracy, the ability to work hard, the ability to have cultural values that value education and hard work and family structure, those things matter. Those things provide big benefits to the United States. And uh, that should be celebrated. How do liberals and leftists, progressives, or, or the anti-racists, how do they explain the upward mobility, the extraordinary advance of Asian Americans? Well, let's, let's 
how do they account for it? There was or do, or do they, they just they, or do they just ignore it? I think that they try to ignore it, but it has since become so inconvenient for them um, that it's become impossible for them to ignore. For example, um, in university, there was a recent graphic on of the University of Maryland College Admissions Officers Conference where they came together and they decided, you know, um, how to make their student body more diverse or whatever. And then they have whites, they have the percentage of whites in their incoming class. And then they have the percentage of what they call people of color in their incoming class. And then under that, they have the percentage of people of color and in parentheses, minus Asians. (laughs) 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 Because those Asians are not the people of color that they really mean, that they really want to admit. Um, because they are not the ones that fit their narrative of the oppressed, victimized minority that they want to help out with all of their liberal kindness. Um, so uh, they have the Asians have become impossible to ignore. They have become an inconvenience to the leftist system. So, and they explain it in one of two ways. I talk about it in my book. Um, the first way that they talk, the first way that they try to explain away Asian success is that the U.S. government prioritized Asians somehow for some reason like in immigration that's not true doesn't make any sense Um, or that the u.s prioritized highly skilled asian americans Um, one uh, that does not explain the rapid rise of the vietnamese population in the united states or even honestly most chinese population in the united states uh, Vietnamese Americans came here with very little wealth. They were refugees from communism, yet they have achieved at such a high rate in our country regardless. Um, they came under a refugee policy. They did not come under a highly skilled policy. Um, and, uh, and then the other argument that the left and liberals use is that, um, Asians are sort of, that there is this sort of, highly unequal sort of um, uh, like depending on the country that Asians come from they there are statistics that show that Asians are still poor uh, in, in in America and you know, of course there are Asians that are still poor in America like th- this author is under no impression that that's not true but if you look at the statistics the, the Asian, even the countries of origin with the higher poverty rates, like the Laotian Americans, the Hmong Americans, the Malaysian Americans, the reason why they're in such high poverty right now in this country is simply because they've come to their, this country much later than the Vietnamese Americans and the Korean Americans and the Chinese Americans. Those Americans came, the Vietnamese Americans and Chinese Americans came in the 80s and had time to build a life. They had time to adopt family structure, and their kids are have very, very low poverty rates. But these Hmong and Cambodian Americans, they came in like the 2000s. They fled a variety of other causes. But if the American dream works for them the way it worked for these other Asian Americans, they're going to be just fine. Um, so the reality is, um, Asian, there is something to culture. You have to the, what, you, what the left is unwilling to accept is that culture is still a predominant factor in your ability to succeed in America. You, 
you don't deny, uh, you go back in history and you don't deny that forms of discrimination against Asian Americans, they, they suffered. And, you know, everyone hears about the Manzanar example, but there were many other cases of, of, of discrimination and uh, uh, importing Chinese labor, you know, to build the, the Southern Pacific or other railroads. Terrible working conditions for them. Uh, and you, you also note that uh, when we go back only a few decades, we find some quite different enrollment patterns at elite schools. You, you go, for instance, into the elite high schools, such as Thomas Jefferson High in Arlington, Virginia. Only 30, 30 or 30, 35 years ago, we didn't see much Asian presence in those high schools at all, did we? Yeah. Um, so here's what happened at Thomas Jefferson High School in Arlington, Virginia, which is the number one math and science high school in the nation. At least it was until the recent admissions policy change. Uh, but basically, admissions to Thomas Jefferson used to be solely on the basis of a test score and grades. And there's some rec teacher recommendations thrown in. Basically, it was a merit-based evaluation. And what happened was it used to be predominantly white, uh, very, very uh, few African-American. That is not universally the case, by the way. There are a lot of merit-based admission schools in our country today with a lot of African-Americans, uh, such as uh, Brooklyn Tech in New York City. Um, but Thomas Jefferson just happened to have predominantly white. And then somewhere over the last 30 years, something changed. Um, Asian immigrants came into the area, the Northern Virginia area, and they just started dominating. Like, they, they were just kicking butt on these tests, on these grades. They were ex exhibiting math expertise way unforeseen higher. And they went from 10% of the class to 70% of Thomas Jefferson's math and science class. Um, <laughs> By, by, and, and it uh, happened quickly. It happened quickly. And it, and it happened very quickly. It happened so quickly. It sort of gave these people whiplash. Um, and these were very liberal school board members. Um, and, and these weren't these weren't necessarily concerned. rich. The the rich Asians. They, a lot of them were from from no, ordinary families, middle class families. No, I, yeah, a lot of them were from ordinary families. Or working say, a lot of their mothers and fathers. Yeah, some, some were working class. A lot of them were middle class, like very entrenched in the middle class, like their moms and dads were accountants, you know, or worked at the tech company nearby. Um, and so... And as, um, you, as, you, report, liberals, as you report yeah. in the book, the, the school board, the, the, the liberal leaders, and the journalists, they hailed this rise as an extraordinary accomplishment of diversity, Correct. Uh, not, not exactly. <laughs> um, well, how did they respond so, yeah. there, Mr. Mr. Shu? How did they respond? I wonder. Um, so the uh, school board, the very generous, tolerant school board members of Fairfax County um, complained that the Asians were stealing all of their good spots. And the current Virginia Secretary of Education uh, previously, a Fairfax County school board member, his name was a Tiff Carney, uh, was specifically quoted as saying, um, it, was, it was specifically quoted comparing Asian students' test performance to being on performance-enhancing drugs um, or cheating. He basically accused Asians of cheating because they studied too hard for these tests. And 
um, they, they invited all of these vicious stereotypes against Asian Americans. And then in the midst of 2020, in the midst of George Floyd and all of that, they saw, they saw their opportunity. They passed a new policy that they had been preparing to pass for a long time. They just needed the opportunity. They passed a new policy to drastically change the admissions system of Thomas Jefferson High School. Um, instead of a merit-based system where evaluation is based on grades, test scores, and recommendation, the new system would be a lottery. And in that lottery system, as long as you reach this absurdly low baseline cutoff, you would be given an equal chance of admissions. And, and they did it in the name of equity. They said that they needed to increase the number of underrepresented groups. And what it did was it increased the number of blacks, it increased the number of Latinos, it increased the number of whites. And the percentage of Asians went down by 50%. Hmm. Now, do we have, yeah, do we have numbers on how TJ students are performing on AP tests relative to how they were performing four or five years ago? Um, I, I, I bet we don't have, not I, at, maybe, maybe yeah, not yet. Not, not at the, not yet. Um, I can, I can bet you that they're going to do their best to delay and delay on release of those numbers and maybe even come up with something like getting rid of performance exams entirely. Who knows? Mm. Uh, <laughs> by that time. But no, we don't, we don't have data on that yet. But one thing's for sure. I don't think that, I think that after this policy happens, it severely compromised the quality of the student body. We have testimony from students and parents saying, you know, I did not bring my kid to, the quality of the curriculum has changed. These teachers who previously were teaching at a high level have to now water down the curriculum to accommodate lower achievers. That's what's happening in the school. So you can't have equity without sacrificing a culture of excellence. That's the big issue at the theme of my book. Let's pause for a moment to ask if you were looking for a Catholic university where the greatest works of Western and Catholic tradition are the foundation for learning, all in an environment that is faithful to the magisterium. That's the University of Dallas in Irving, Texas. Recommended by the Cardinal Newman Society, the university offers an exceptional liberal arts education with undergraduate and graduate programs in arts and sciences, business, and ministry, as well as a campus in Rome, Italy, all of them preserving the wisdom of the past while preparing students for world-changing futures. Academically excellent, always faithful. Apply today at udallas.edu. You, you mentioned a term that's been popping up. Asian privilege. What is Asian privilege? Asian privilege is an intersectional idea made by these, by, you know, gender studies and Africana studies majors at all of these selective colleges who basically are trying to find a way to explain Asian success that don't want to invoke culture. So they call Asians privileged because to them, privilege is not a good thing. To them, privilege means that we need to take away, that, we, that they're justified in having things taken away from them. That's why they have white privilege. But now it's not just whites who are achieving. Now it's these Asians who are coming in and they're kicking butt on these exams and they're, um, you know, and they're, they're getting, they're, they're well employed, they have high salaries. I'm not, hey, you know what? I'm not saying Asians are culturally superior because they're not. Asians face a lot of problems in this country. Still today, there are high rates of mental health issues among Asians. Um, there's assimilation issues um, in other ways. But at least in education, Asians are kicking butt. That's, what, that's, that's undeniable. And so they have to find a way to explain this. And without invoking culture, they use the word privilege. They say that Asian 
are sort of like they're like they're like white adjacent people. <laughs> yeah. That is, um, they don't that is they don't deserve the fruits of their efforts. That's the implication that they're making. The implication is that Asians don't deserve the fruits of their efforts, and that the, the story about that is so wrong. You have to mangle the Asian story so wrong in order to get that way, because the reality is the vast majority of Asian Americans did come here. They had to work their butts off so that they or their family could get the benefits of the American dream. And so they deserve every penny. And the left does not want to admit that because that that provides some inconvenient truth to them about the role of culture in society. You, you turn to Harvard University. What is the big court case about? The big court, so for those who are less familiar, uh, Students for Fair Admissions versus Harvard is a lawsuit that has been brewing since 2014. But basically, it's a group of Asian applicants to Harvard who are rejected, um, who are now suing Harvard for uh, discrimination under its diversity and inclusion policy, Harvard's affirmative action policy, basically. And Harvard's race preferences policy, which it explicitly admits to have, it admits it uses race, now it tries to minimize the effect of it. They say, oh, we just use race as one factor. Oh, right. So that's why Asians have been kept to between 15 and 18 percent of your student body for the last 30 years, right? Because there's nothing suspicious about that <laughs> um, with almost no variation. Um, but, uh, but Harvard um, basically... They, the other data that was released shows that Asians have to score 440 points higher on the SAT to have the same chance of admission as a black student. And they have to score 150 points higher to have the same chance of admission as a white student. So there are these alternative standards depending upon which race Harvard deems you as. Um, and of course, this is wrong. This is racially discriminatory. Um, how This is the definition of discrimination. Um, and that case has made it all the way to the Supreme Court. And in this year, on January, in mid-January 2022, the Supreme Court took up this case. And it's going to be heard in front of the Supreme Court this year. And it could decide the future of race preferences for the entire country. Your prediction? I think we're going to win. I think students for fair admissions. Oh, look, I just uh, revealed my loyalties. <laughs> um, it's just it's loyalties based on the facts, guys. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. We have the better case. We have the better case. There's, um, you can't. You look at these standards. You look at Harvard's what everything that comes out of Harvard's mouth day after day. Diversity and inclusion, DEI. You know, um, everything that they do, everything that they do and says screams. We don't want too many of you guys. We want other minorities. We want other people who look like America. We want to make Harvard look like America. Well, guess how? Well, guess what percentage of Harvard gets to be Asian if you want to make Harvard look like America? Six percent, because that's the percentage of of Asians in this country. And but right now, that does not reflect. Right now, Harvard accepts about twenty percent of. Admit, uh, admitted students are Asian, is that correct? Right, 20% of admitted students are Asian. You might say, well, Kenny, that seems overrepresented. But, but uh, it's, yeah, been, it's, been 20, it's been 20% for several years. At the same time, we see Asian educational achievement at the high school level going higher and higher, right? That's, that's the issue. Yeah, and let me just, 
let me just make it very clear to your listeners. Asians make up 55% of the top SAT scores in the nation right now. 55% of them are Asian, 40% of them are white, 3% are Hispanic, and 2% are black. So um, you, you, you should not be measuring the the so-called equity representation in accordance with the entire population. We should be measuring in accordance um, to 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 the percentage of the population that is in that tier of academic achievement. Um, so that's the big issue. And Harvard's actually, Harvard actually admitted this. Their own Office of Institutional Research concluded in 2013 that if Harvard admitted just on the basis of academic merit, Asians would make up 43% of the university. Hmm. What was the, quote, personality score on the Harvard application? So Harvard needed to find, develop a way to justify their discrimination against Asians. Um, so they turned to a time-honored old trick that they borrowed from their equally exclusive friends in the 1920s at Harvard, where they, basically the president at the time, Lawrence Lowell, did not want too many Jews in the university. Um, and Jews, of course, were taking over the university. Uh, look, at, look at me, I'm already using his language. Um, they were not. They were. They were being admitted at, at. They were being admitted into Harvard at rates that Lowell deemed unacceptable. That he thought that he considered taking over their university, and so Lawrence Lowell made a proposal that was accepted to cap Jews at 15% of Harvard. Um, and but then the um, the board said, no, you can't do that. That's too explicit. So then Lawrence Lowell said. Okay, well, let's make an artif let's make a character assessment, right? And for some reason, you know, for some reason, Jews just happen to score lowest on this character assessment. Um, <laughs> well, obviously, <laughs> I mean, clearly. Well, obviously, just just so happens that this character assessment that was decisive towards whether you got into Harvard, uh, Jews just happened to score the lowest. Um, and so they borrowed this. I mean, this is this is an old trick. This is nothing new. This personality score, nothing new. Asians score highest in academics at Harvard. They score highest in extracurric extracurriculars in terms of the application process. This is based on the data that was publicly revealed on Harvard's admissions process. Highest in academics, highest in extracurriculars. They have the highest teacher recommendation scores, the second highest counselor recommendation scores. I assume they're pretty good, darn great at the personal essay too, although we don't have objective measures of that. And um, and yet, for some reason, on this arbitrary personality score, which measures things like leadership, character, humor, friendliness, Asians score lowest out of all of the races. And pity these Asians. That is the score that is determinant in over 80% of Harvard's admissions cases. Isn't that sad? <laughs> well, now, I, I have to believe that this is, this is not going to do well in, in court uh, when, when, these, when these issues are raised, unless the justices are so tied to these elite schools that they have such loyalty to them, which actually did come up in the Michigan case from 2003, but I mean, this this is really pushing it. This is very going to be well, very I, hard. Well, I talk about the last affirmative action case put in front of the Supreme Court in my book, *In the Convenient Minority*. It's it's a wild ride. It's a great story. Um, 
you know, of course you should read my book, An Inconvenient Minority. But basically what happened was Fisher, Abby Fisher, um, of the famous Fisher versus University of Texas Supreme Court case, which was about this thing, except the only difference is Abby Fisher was white, um, sued the University of Texas, reached the Supreme Court. Um, the Supreme Court basically everybody expected Fisher to win after the Supreme Court issued its first ruling, which was that the University of Texas needed to go back and revise its admission system um, and that they find very strong evidence, but they did not make a definitive ruling. And then they made it, and then the liberal justices made a pact with Anthony Kennedy and Fisher too, which was the second case for Abby Fisher, um, which was about it, which was um, made the following year. And the liberal justices made a pact with Anthony Kennedy, and Anthony Kennedy, a Harvard grad, Harvard law grad, alma mater, bleeding Harvard through and through, went with the liberals in ruling for Harvard's uh, race-based affirmative action policy. So, very interesting. <laughs> now, here, now, here, now, this is, now, this is another interesting dynamic. Ketanji Brown-Jackson, the newly minted Supreme Court justice, was on the Harvard Board of Overseers during the time that the Students for Fair Admissions case against Harvard has been litigated. So it raised a big question. Uh-oh, you're giving advice to Harvard about how to deal with this policy, and now you're on the Supreme Court, potentially in range to judge it. Does now, she have to recuse? Fortunately, yes. And, and, and Ted Cruz raised that objection in her in her confirmation hearing and Ketanji Brown Jackson said, yes, I will recuse. Huh. So this will only eight justices will will vote on this, will weigh in. Correct. Only eight justices will weigh on it. And the one supposedly very liberal swing justice, Ketanji Brown Jackson, would not, will not, will not weigh in on it. There is much, much more in, in the book uh, that, that we get in in the discussions of admissions, of history, of, of social issues within uh, Asian American populations. Uh, but for, for now, the book is An Inconvenient Minority, The Attack on Asian American Excellence and the Fight for Meritocracy. Kenny Shu, thank you for joining us. Thank you, Mark. And thank you for listening to our conversation, which has been supported by Wyoming Catholic College, which combines great books, the Catholic tradition, and the great outdoors of the American West into an extraordinary education. Go to wyomingcatholic.edu or contact the admissions office at 877-332-2930.